Hi, and welcome to another episode of The Lawdown. Happy New Year, I'm not really sure we can still say it, but yes, Happy New Year to everyone. And we're really, really happy to be back in 2024. Um, my name is Wadi Sandel. I'm a Senior Associate at CM Murray. And on today's uh, podcast, the first of the year, I am joined by Beth Hale, uh, a partner in the firm, Kia Aoki, who is our lovely uh, new associate um, and who's doing her first debut on The Lawdown today. And we have Sarah Chilson, another one of our amazing partners. So today we have a couple of stories, uh, headlines that we wanted to discuss with you. The first is to do with pay disparities and demographic trends. And Beth's gonna speak a bit about that. And then there was a story that we all that we saw around uh, pay disparity between CEOs and the average workers and how much they end up earning or how quickly in the year they end up out earning the average worker. Uh, we're also going to talk about a story um, regarding a Rastafarian soldier who won his racism case against the army. And then lastly, we're going to talk about the trend of strikes that we've seen um, on the rise. So without further ado, over to you with our first story about pay disparities um, and demographic trends. Thanks, Wani, and um, Happy New Year. If, as, as you say, we're recording this on the 22nd of January. I think maybe it's too late, but, you know. So, yeah, I was going to talk about um, Ethnicity Pay Gap Day, which is a, a day which is kind of, which falls on the 8th of January each year. It was launched by someone called Diane Grayson to sort of raise the issue of earnings inequity across all sectors between different ethnicities. And as many of you will know, there is an obligation on organisations uh, with over 250 employees to publish gender pay gap data each year. But there is currently no obligation to, on, on organisations to report, to report the gap in the, their ethnicity pay gap. Um, and there's been there have been a couple of consultations. There have been various discussions around how, how, when, if that should be introduced. Um, but I just think that the data um, published around the ethnicity pay gap is really, really stark and really interesting to think about. And there was some data published by the Fawcett Society earlier in January which says that women of Bangladeshi and Pakistani heritage in the UK are earning on average a third less an hour, almost a third less an hour than white British men. Um, and that, and as the Fawcett Society rightly say, that should be causing national outrage. I think often it's been pushed back on the sort of idea that you would have to publish your ethnicity pay gap has been pushed back on partly because people say, it's too difficult. How do you do it? What do you report? How do you define someone's ethnicity, which is so much, you know, so sort of multifaceted? And how do you deal with the sort of cross, the sort of intersectionality of the pay gap? Was it, where the statistic I just quoted is women of Bangladeshi and Pakistani heritage is, compared to white British men. So it's, it, it is, you know, that it's all so linked in with with gender as well as as ethnicity. And but I think. I think we are getting to the stage, aren't we, where you have to say just because it's difficult, it doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. And actually, there was quite a lot of pushback when the gender pay gap reporting was first mooted and first introduced. And everyone said, well, it's a blunt tool. Um, and I think I actually, when it was first sort of talked about, thought it, you know, it's a blunt, it is a blunt tool. It doesn't, you know, it, had no, it has no sort of teeth, but actually just focusing people's minds, focusing organisations' minds on what, what, is going on in their organization making people think about it making people focus on it and the 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 publicity that it attracts is really um you know really quite 
important and I think has made a difference, although um, the the pandemic has put our gender pay gap shrinking backwards a bit, hasn't it? But I think I, I think you you have to shine a light on these things in order to have any sense of change. And I, I think it surely it's time that that some kind of compulsory ethnicity pay gap reporting was introduced. Yeah, I think I think I agree with you um, there. I think most things in life to a degree will be difficult in some way when you've got to implement something new. And I, I remember as well when the gender pay gap reporting came in and there was that initial, it's going to be an administrative burden, um, you know, all the sort of red tape and we don't want to be giving businesses extra things to do. Um, but as you say, I think it's been helpful, including um, not just publicising on um, employers' websites, people probably see around uh, International Women's Day, there often is the um, publicising on social media platforms, um, I think what was formerly known as Twitter, now known as X, <laughs> by the, um, is it the gender pay gap bot? Gender pay gap bot, yeah. Yeah, that, that would publicise um, the gender pay gaps of those companies who were professing to be doing really great things for International Women's Day, but had, you know, poor, uh, poor statistics on their their gender pay gap, or maybe good statistics, but at least they, you know, it would be out there. Um, and I think shining the light, as you say, Beth, I think that's important because it helps to get the discussion going. Sometimes without the data, it's hard to drive things forward because we don't know what we're trying to change. Um, yeah. But when you have the data, and even if that data is small, because that's another issue, I think, with the ethnicity uh, pay gap is that within some organisations, it's difficult to collect the information, not just because of categorization, but because of the numbers. How many, um, you know, Bangladeshi women might you have in your organisation generally? So, you know, what are you measuring that against? It's a 100% gay pay gap. <laughs> There's nobody there. Yeah. Um, but even that's helpful information. But even that is helpful. That, it's that helpful information, they... yeah. Especially when it's compared against more uh, wide population data um, that shows how many of those ethnicities are within the population more generally or within particular areas of the country for example yeah. London or Greater London um, which of course is going to be more diverse in some or is more diverse than some other areas of the, the country so I think it should be done and hopefully will there'll be more um, pressure to make it compulsory because I think it will bring about some change um, even if it's not quick change. Yeah, it's interesting because I was looking <clears throat> when I was sort of look, reading up on the topic, having sort of agreed to talk about it today. Um, I, I, there's an article written by our colleagues, Emma Bartlett and Yulia Fedorenko, in February last year, basically saying exactly what we're saying now in, in sort of quickly after Ethnicity Pay Gap Day 2023. And there doesn't seem to have been much movement since then which is disappointing isn't it but i think um there are difficulties as you as you rightly say about sort of categorization how that is reported how you know what what it looks like but i think given the very stark differences in in pay i think it's something that the, the government just has to you know get yeah. on and then there'll be the big question which government anyway i'll leave that there <laughs> let's see <laughs> quickly on to uh the next topic that I will be covering um, it links into what uh, was talking about um, this time it's pay disparity between um, CEOs and the C-suite um, and your average worker so um, there have been stories published right at the beginning of the year um, 
that confirmed that the FTSE 100 CEOs, so the, you know, the country's biggest companies, will have made more money in 2024 by the 4th of January this year, lunchtime, <laughs> that's important, um, than the average UK worker will earn in their entire year. In actual value, that amount is £34,963. So that's how much the average UK worker earns. Um, and that was research done um, by the High Pay Centre. So they've done um, analysis of the, the various pay gaps. Some other interesting information before I just talk about what my views on this and, and where it might be interesting for both employers and employees, um, is that the average pay of CEOs have also been reported has increased by 9.5% since March 2023. And the median workers pay has only increased by six percent so again there's a there's a gap yeah there's a there's a difference there um it was reported in the same um, report that i read in preparation for this that the general secretary of the uh, tuc had blamed politicians for allowing that gap um to grow and there was a, a view expressed that actually we don't have to have things this way and what we actually need is a, an economy that works not just wealth um and some suggestions made around putting some putting workers on company boards um to inject you know common sense into decisions around things like pay um as well as you know taxing taxing wealth fairly now some of those issues are political and some of those issues are um have an employment angle um to them a lot of people may remember last year, uh, I think we did a podcast when the government introduced measures that were aimed at making um, the country more competitive. So they had abolished a rule capping bonuses for bankers um, at 100% of salary. And that was a measure that had been introduced back in 2014. So they abolished that. Again, it's sort of going uh, hand in ha hand with this idea of higher paid workers getting all of these uh, benefits and and uh, incentives and higher pay, whilst ordinary workers um, are pay isn't isn't increasing. I when I read the story, a couple of issues came to mind for me that I I wanted to discuss. And first off is, I mean, obviously it's a big issue because for a lot of ordinary people and businesses, they'll be everybody's dealing with the the cost of living crisis that was ongoing from last year. So seeing that that disparity between how uh, how much uh, CEOs are earning four days into the year, um, I think just highlights that point that a lot of people will be struggling or, you know, struggling to get by on their average wages. And things that came to mind for me in terms of what employees and employers might be might be doing around this or how we could potentially try and tackle this are the mechanisms that we actually have in the UK for employee representation, including things like, you know, works councils, not all uh, employers but some um, and employee for forums and how important it is in a time like this for employers to be ensuring that there are effective communication channels if where they can and involving employees in discussions around executive pay again where they can can be crucial um i think in in trying to reduce any of, of that um not just the, the actual disparity itself but but i guess the uh the way that the employees feel about um, about that disparity um, and about how how valued they are. Um, I think it's a, it's a way for uh, employers to potentially address any concerns 
around fairness and transparency. So maybe some people do not know that their CEO <laughs> um, has out-earned them by the fourth day of the year. Um, but maybe if there was some involvement in, in that decision-making, um, it, it would make things a, a bit easier. Any discontent that employees may feel, um, it might be a way to, to combat that. Um, and then on the employee side, I think in this sort of environment where there are huge disparities like that between the average worker and the um, sort of C-suite CEOs, um, the things for employees to think about are around in individual negotiations or collective uh, negotiations. Now that might depend on, and it's something we will hopefully come on to a bit later when we're talking about the strikes and, and how those have been impacting the country in different industries, but it will depend on the negotiating power that the individual has, uh, that the employee has, uh, the industry that they work in obviously will impact that and how much it is generally earned in that industry. Um, but equally, as I said, as we've seen, collective bargaining as, as well has played and will, I think, play a big part for employees in trying to change the position and increase their, their um, remuneration. Um, then the last thing I just want to touch on is um, other areas that employers might be able to focus on which aren't strictly compensation. So again, you know, it's, we've got to acknowledge, I think that it's not an easy time for anybody, including businesses. So employers may also be struggling to keep pace with inflation. Um, and they may be other things that they need to think about outside of um, compensation that could um, help to continue to, you know, motivate their employees, um, continue to show their employees that they're valued, that are, not going to completely uh, empty all the coffers. So um, there are things like, you know, flexible working schedules. There are changes to the flexible uh, working regime in the UK um, this year, um, where it will soon be a day one right for people to request flexible working, but it's only a right, as I think um, our very own Beth had <laughs> pointed out to us a couple of weeks back in another, um, I think over email actually, uh, if I remember correctly. It's just that everyone reports, don't they? Everyone says flexible working to be a day one right. No, a right to request is a day one right. It's a bit different. Exactly. It's a right to request. So you could also be refused. <laughs> um, um, and But that is something for employers to think about, you know, carefully considering those requests if, if and when they come in um, as an additional sort of benefit alongside um, any sort of compensation and remuneration. But other things... I mean, I'm just going to flow, throw these out there from my research um, prior to, to this uh, podcast that some employers are doing are you know, group gym memberships. When I say group, I don't mean go to the gym with your colleagues unless you really want to, but <laughs> the provision of group gym memberships. Um, but one thing you can do with your colleagues um, or employers can put into place for employees to do collectively if they really want to is weekly exercise classes. Those are things that... Um, some employers are doing as well, you know, one hour yoga in the office a week, if, if that sort of floats your boat. Um, having, looking at, at the opportunities for local discounts in um, local stores, for example, partnering up with local stores. Again, that can help local businesses. Weekly lunch buffets, bring your dog to work days, finishing early, casual dress codes, which I think everyone is doing now, or, or a lot of people are probably doing now, post pandemic. Um, unlimited pay time off quiz nights, company day trips, and you know, the list can go on, but there are other things to think about, I think is the main point um, outside of um, increased compensation, which is equally important as I spoke about, and we'll talk about how, as I said, um, 
collectively, I think different industries are, are trying to improve uh, compensation. Um, but these are things I think that employers could also think about. Interestingly, there was an article, there was a piece of research published by Oxford University last week, looking at the benefit, the impact of workplace well-being interventions, such as like mindfulness classes and all of those, which suggests that the, the benefit is negligible. And actually what you should be focusing on is creating a less stressful work environment rather than ways to alleviate the stress rather than the stress. yeah <laughs> so I mean I don't, I'm, I'm you know we can talk about that separately but I think it is interesting isn't it because I think a lot of employers are focusing on that and sort of you know what can we do to alleviate the stress and I think the the real answer is I mean I think they don't say they have no impact they certainly have a modest impact um and yeah I think Just, it, what do they count as sort of well-being interventions what what would that um they talk about is um so it said so it's published by oxford university as i say um companies around the world apparently spent 61.2 billion dollars on wellness interventions in 2021 so they cost money they take up time but they have little or no impact on employee well-being so they talk about uh, offering helping workers stop smoking offering diet plans yoga and exercise classes installing bicycle powered desks which sounds amazing giving employees kind of access to well-being apps those kinds of things taking on employee taking employees on outdoor adventures yeah turns out the most effective way to employ in, to uh, improve employee mental health is by reducing stress rather than adding new ways to cope with it interesting i can see that there is I'm also yeah <laughs> curious as to whether they controlled for the fact that that was a year after like the worst year of probably everybody's lives so i don't know <laughs> and I have I'm, I've read a press report of it and not the not the actual um not the actual report itself so I'm it's it's uh yeah purely sort of hearsay I think there is sometimes a risk that employers might put out these things like giving access to headspace apps but is that just a facade for showing that there is those um kind of things in place rather than addressing kind of underlying concerns about overload or not enough employees to to fill the work and is that just kind of for show in a sense so you do kind of need to consider that imbalance with well, the actual well giving someone access to headspace if you if they never have time to use it, isn't it? So. well exactly <laughs> yeah. about the many puns that are coming to my mind that i'm not going to say um so i think we will move on to our next story which is um, going to be led by Kia, and it's a story about a Rastafarian soldier who won his racism case against the army. So over to you, Kia. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Uh, so to give some background on that story, uh, so as you said, it involves a Rastafarian soldier. Uh, his name was Dwight Kyle Gray, and he worked as a soldier in the British Army. And there was an incident where a white soldier questioned his identity when he tried to enter the barracks uh, and didn't believe he was a soldier there. And Mr. Paul Gray had said it was very clearly due to his appearance that that had happened. Um, and then he challenged that soldier about how he'd handled it and then complained to his seniors about the matter as well. And what ultimately happened was that he himself faced disciplinary action for his behavior and the kind of process of complaining about that. Uh, and was charged with insubordination. And he then brought claims of race discrimination, victimization and racial harassment to the ET and was actually successful in all of those claims. 
And so there are two particular points to that story that I found quite interesting from a legal perspective. And the first is the way in which that incident was handled. So in this case, not only were Mr. Palgrave's complaints not upheld by the British Army, um, but he himself was disciplined and charged with insubordination. And I I think that kind of retaliation to him making a complaint, it almost echoes kind of victim blaming approach. And it's obviously going to be incredibly inflammatory in that kind of situation. Uh, So I think in, in handling incidents of these kinds, employers, and this applies in any workplace, they need to be making sure that employees feel like they can make complaints in a safe space without fear of retaliation or their career being detrimentally affected if they do speak up. And in this case, the employer's handling of the matter meant that not only did the did the claimant have the race discrimination and harassment claim, but it also but they also had um, a victimization claim as well. So so the nature of the handling, so the way the matter was handled really kind of escalated and worsened that initial situation. Um, and the second point I wanted to mention was that in cases like this, sometimes you need to look at the bigger picture and consider whether these incidents are symptoms of larger institutional issues. Uh, and I know there have been a number of stories in the press, including uh, allegations of systemic racism in the Met Police and allegations of a toxic work culture in the CBI, which I know you've discussed on previous podcasts. And kind of looking at the British Army, uh, kind of in doing the research, I found that in 2019, um, an independent ombudsman said that racism is prevalent in the army and that ethnic minorities make up a disproportionate number of the bullying, harassment and discrimination complaints. So if you look at this case in that context, I think you do have to consider how people at the top are handling those kinds of issues and whether they need to be implementing more deep-rooted changes to these organisations. And I think it's a reminder to employers that if you don't handle these kind of problems effectively and fairly in the first instance, then employees will feel like they need to go to external forums like the ET in order to obtain that justice. Um, And in doing so, that's when these issues snowball into the kind of large scale, reputationally damaging issues that we've kind of seen so much in the news. Thanks, Keir. So interesting, isn't it? I think you're absolutely right that it's often the the internal handling, bad internal handling of a a matter that exacerbates the situation, you know, where, where, you know, if it was handled well internally, could have kind of all been resolved much earlier. I agree with that. Um, in the especially also in the context of victimization I think that you correctly raised as well sometimes even if employer investigates and found out that but properly investigates and found out maybe that, that there wasn't any grounds um, or it, the allegation wasn't substantiated at least they properly investigated if you don't yeah. properly investigate that could potentially amount to victimization so I um, mean if it's done on the grounds of, of um, the person having raised the issue in the first place so the reason why you're not doing it is <laughs> because they, they raised an issue against you um yeah so yeah like you said it's almost like you could avoid yourself getting into double uh double yeah. danger area <laughs> you just deal with the process go through a process yeah. and if you need help i mean i've got four wonderful lawyers on this podcast so 
Right, well then, let's move on to our final um, story, which is all about the strikes, which I'm sure everyone has been impacted by in some way, whether or not you travel or through uh, the NHS um, and all the other various industries that are striking. So over to you, Sarah. Yeah, so uh, as you say, everyone's aware of these. There have been quite a lot of notable strikes and probably I think more than a lot of us have really known in our sort of working lifetime um, over the last few years, Everyone will know that the train drivers and other uh, staff involved in the provision of railway and tube services have been striking quite regularly. Um, I think quite unusually, junior doctors and consultant doctors have also been on strike and multiple times, which has hugely affected provision of um, hospital services. Historically, over the last couple of years, we've had nurses, border force, ambulance um, and a lot more people strike going on strike. It's, I think, interesting from two perspectives. One, the government's response to this has been quite interesting. And I'll talk about two things that they're, uh, they're, they're doing at the moment. And also just what does that tell us about the dissatisfaction amongst those sectors? I mean, it is significant. Um, it's not just about pay. It's often about pay and conditions or conditions or changes to the conditions. Um, a lot of the time, the unions are very focused on the safety issues that the current paying conditions produce. You know, I think in the train drivers strike and in the junior doctors strike, they're very focused on not just the pay of themselves, but also the safety issues that the changes that are being proposed um, or the lack of change that is being proposed in the case of the junior doctors, the impact that that has on patient safety. I think particularly in the hospitals, there's a significant concern, concern that without improvement to pay, and conditions, we are just losing so many qualified staff in their droves um, to other jurisdictions and the impact that that has is catastrophic on the NHS. Um, so how the government obviously have responded to this is not quite in the way that the people on strike would like, which would be to increase the paying conditions and make things better and negotiate meaningfully with those unions. How they have instead responded is to try and make it harder to strike. I mean, I guess we shouldn't be too surprised. Um, so two things that they've tried to do, well, one they've succeeded and one that they're trying to do, they're trying to make the ability of um, employers to use agency workers, something that they can do to cover absences caused by strikes. Whether this would be practically effective is a difficult question to answer because a lot of the unions are arguing that in fact there aren't enough agency workers. So the ASLEF union who represent train drivers, they have 22,000 members. Uh, their position is that in any event, you couldn't get the number of agency workers that would be available to cover anyway. So it's not really a, a massive help. But nevertheless, um, the government put through legislation in July 2022 to allow the use of agency workers in periods of strike. It was then challenged by ASLEF and it was defeated in the High Court in 2023 in July. And so now the government's response to that, the Department for Business and Trade have consulted. And in fact, it just closed on the 16th of January. They've consulted on the legislation again. Um, most of the unions obviously have opposed that um, and are saying that it's an attack on the overall right to strike. So the government consultation is currently away for consideration. And so we'll have to see how they respond. But I, I think it would be unexpected if they were to change their position entirely on that. But at the moment, um, it's unlawful to use agency workers to cover the strikes per the High Court decision. The other thing the government have brought in at the end of last year are minimum service level regulations. So far, they've brought them in for the border force, passport control, passenger rail services and ambulance services. They may bring in for others. Um, and um, they maintain that you must have minimum service levels. So even during a period of strike, that the 
striking workers and their unions must provide minimum service to the employer or the you know train service or the NHS, whatever it might be. Um, and so that uh, is, is something else that is, I guess, attacking. And what that means in practice is that if the worker then breaches that requirement to provide minimum service by going on strike, they have no unfair dismissal protection. So normally a worker who strikes and strikes via a properly balloted vote via a union um, is protected from unfair dismissal. Now, they might not get paid to be on strike. In fact, inevitably, they won't get paid to be on strike, but they can't suffer detriment or unfair dismissal because of choosing to strike. And um, that would affect that. Um, it has been quite interesting. There have been some potentially high profile complaints by workers um, whereby they say that they have been subjected to um, detriment for potentially planning to strike. There have been some um, allegations that some employers, for example, were threatening to deduct pay before people even decided to strike or not. And what, what should happen is that an employer um, shouldn't affect pay until they know whether someone's striking or not. Um, they should, uh, you know, assume that people are not striking and people can strike without giving notice to the employer, for example. Um, so so it was alleged in those sort of situations that employers were trying to, I guess, persuade, bully, manipulate employees into not going on strike because of the impact it might have on them. Um, but, you know, as we've seen, and as we've seen from the disruption it causes, people have been undeterred um, and are committed to striking. And I, I, I guess it... If you are in a cohort of workers who have lost significant amount of pay over the last two, three years because of regular strikes, you're probably in quite deep in terms of your commitment to that. And to, to kind of give up now would be all for nothing. Um, so I completely understand why you would feel that you want to continue. Um, and I mean, I, I think the government inevitably will ultimately have to listen if these go on and on and on, um, whether the government will still be there to listen. <laughs> it's a different matter because the timing of it might be that they can continue to strike until the general election and then who knows um but yes there'll be a government won't there whether whether it's there'll be a government it might not it might not it might be this one it might not be this one um labor have vowed to repeal um the legislation which attacks the right to strike the scottish government have said that they won't use the minimum service level legislation the Welsh government, I think, have said the same. Um, they won't allow the agency workers to to cover strikes. So, so it's really just the Westminster government that are, that are particularly um, committed to making it hard to strike. Um, but I think it's interesting culturally that we are now in a an era whereby it is so much more common than it was. Um, and I think that's probably twofold. One, I think paying conditions haven't kept up with inflation, uh, and that is you know a huge issue, particular particularly in certain sectors. But I also think that we have a much more mobilised and um, activist workforce and, you know, people will speculate as to why that is and whether that's because people can communicate much more easily via technology, campaigns can get off the ground much more easily via things like, um, you know, social media, etc. Or whether it is, you know, something else. But it's it's interesting times in, in that context. And I guess we just have to see if it works and if these people eventually get the um, improved paying conditions that they're fighting for and that I think lots of us would say that they deserve. It's interesting isn't it how I think until a few years ago strikes were I mean not rare but much much less common weren't they and I think yeah. we you know when I say we I think, I think British people broadly often thought about it as a sort of that's the kind of thing that happens in France and Italy and and not so much here um, but that has been very much 
very clear that is not the case over the last yeah. year. It's been really interesting with the, I mean, obviously, if, if doctors and nurses go on strike, that's completely different. But if rail drivers and tube drivers go on strike, it's interesting now how a lot of the workforce will adapt to that much more than they did pre-2020. And that's quite interesting in itself, because, you know, does that mean that the power that they have to withdraw services in certain areas is diminished because of the ability for people to function without getting to work physically and without being in the office? But obviously, there are still huge amounts of workers who need to be present. And obviously, that has absolutely no impact on, you know, if there are doctors in the hospital. I mean, if there are no doctors in the hospital, it doesn't matter if you can work from home or not. I mean, if you're sick, you you need treatment. But yes, yeah, it's, it's interesting from that perspective. I wonder, I mean, I wonder if there's been a sort of psychological change about sort of that direct action since the pandemic and since the, certainly since sort of NHS, the praise that the NHS got during the, during the uh, initial bits of, of the, of the of lockdown and the pandemic, um, whether that has sort of emboldened and empowered those NHS workers to, to take the action that they have. I think emboldened, empowered, and potentially angered because absolutely you know, yeah, yeah. clapping, but can I actually have some yeah. money that allow me to live a proper life? Is um yeah, I have read quite a lot about it, and um yeah, I find it. I, I I have huge admiration to those incredibly committed junior doctors who are losing money every time they strike because they are fighting what they truly believe in, and you know they they don't get paid enough to lose lots of money. I mean. But, but actually, the one other thing I want to say about strikes, which I feel, you know, is quite important, is that the very people who possibly have the worst paying conditions across the whole workforce are the very people who probably can't strike because you have to lose your pay to strike. And if you are on the minimum wage and you are struggling over two jobs to feed your family, you simply can't afford it. So you've got to be in that slightly kind of not not great either middle ground of actually being able to not necessarily feel able to but you know you lose the money um maybe you're just about surviving if you lose the money but you you know you committed to that and that's absolutely you know the right thing to do but you know the worst of you know the people in the worst paying conditions can't do it they just you know they won't be able to even pay union fees they might not be in a unionized em employer um they might simply be unable to lose even an hour's pay in a lot of cases and you know that means that their power to affect their terms and conditions, which might be absolutely awful, is completely, you know, non-existent, which is incredibly sad and strikes me as incredibly unfair. Yeah, it is. It's all pretty unsatisfactory, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, sorry we didn't end on a sort of happy note for January. Well, the, la the um, Labour manifesto has got a lot of content <laughs> for us if, if it ever happens, because... <laughs> They, they've got a lot to say about what they'll do with employment law and with workers' rights, et cetera, which is all very interesting. And, you know, some of it may not be practical, particularly if you take it all together, but incredibly interesting stuff. So, you know, if this may be an incredibly interesting year for us as employment lawyers, if yeah. there's a change in government, because, you know, what what other parties plan is, is kind of vastly different in some cases to what we've got at the moment. And it would be really interesting to see how that affects the working population and lawmakers and what we do and you know the world of work i think it's going to be incredibly interesting because even even if there's not a change in government i think an election campaign which i mean i think we all think is likely right but um i think a election campaign always brings with it interesting proposals around around employment law and uh industrial relations and um yeah so it'll be really interesting to see what everybody 
comes up with on that front. Yeah. Well, thank you, everyone. Thanks, Beth. Thanks, Kia. Thanks, Sarah. Um, welcome back again, <laughs> everyone, to this new year. And thanks for listening. Um, we hope you enjoyed the episode. If you want to listen to any of our past episodes, please do go on to our website. Um, there is also plenty uh, of other materials, articles, webinars, other things <laughs> you can check out at www.cm-murray.com. Uh, thanks again. Um, bye. Thanks, Bonnie. Okay, thanks. Bye. Thank